Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Our text for our sermon is John chapter 7, verses 40 through 43. After hearing his words, some of the people said, This is truly the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Surely the Christ does not come from Galilee, does he? Doesn't the scripture say that Christ comes from David's descendants and from the little town of Bethlehem where David lived? So the people were divided because of him. This is the gospel history of our Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we certainly wouldn't think a child was destined for greatness if they were born in a barn and placed in a cattle feed trough for a crib, would we? And we certainly, if a person died in the electric chair, wouldn't think too highly of them or think that they had quite an illustrious life that ended with a pretty good bang, right? But there is where our souls are saved. There is God taking on human flesh. When Jesus was born, probably sometime later when they went down for his presentation at the temple, Simeon sings those wonderful words that the Christian church has sung ever since. In peace, Lord, you now let your servant depart. But after that, in Luke chapter 2, verse 34, we're told, Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Listen carefully. This child is appointed for the falling and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. When people see a mere child or when they see a mere man on that cross, their thoughts are revealed. And in today's text, Jesus is 31 or 32 years old, and he certainly has revealed the thoughts of many hearts. So our sermon theme for today is Jesus reveals the thoughts of our hearts. Our first verse in our sermon text, verse 40, says, After hearing his words, some of the people said, This is truly the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. What did they mean, This is truly the prophet? Moses had prophesied in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, The Lord your God will rise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your brother Israelites, listen to him. They were right. Jesus was the prophet that Moses had prophesied about. But the fact that others had to say, ah, he's the Christ. Now, we know Christ means anointed. He's the one who was anointed by the Holy Spirit to mark it very clear that he was our Savior. So those who thought he was the prophet, that's all they thought. Moses was considered the greatest of all the prophets. Not that we really want to compare gifts that God gives to each one of us. They would have thought Elijah and Elisha then were probably second and third place. So when they thought of the prophet, they thought of Moses. Moses led the people out of the captivity of the Egyptians until they came to the promised land. They thought a prophet would come and lead them out of captivity to the Roman Empire. Moses was the one through who went up the mountain and they made a covenant with the people. God gave them the moral, the civil, and the ceremonial law. And the covenant was, so long as you keep those laws as a nation to a person, I will bless you and your land will flow with milk and honey and you will not have to worry about foreign invaders. Of course, the Israelites botched that deal generation after generation. So they would be thinking primarily of Jesus as maybe even coming and reestablishing that covenant for them that this time if generations just kept it. Jesus is more than just a prophet 
more than just a prophet, more than Moses. Jesus is the prophet. In the Greek inspired language, that would be the monadic article, meaning the prophet of prophets. He's also the Lord of lords, the king of kings, and he is the high priest to whom all other priests were to point to. And the reason why we know he's the prophet is because John in John chapter one tells us he's the word, the word who became flesh and made his dwelling among us. When Jesus speaks, he is speaking for the Trinity. The only time we're ever told of God the Father speaking is in the New Testament, like at Jesus' baptism. God the Father only speaks a couple of times in all of Scripture. So Jesus is the prophet because he comes and he is the spokesman for the Trinity, true God who became true man. But if we just make him a prophet like Moses, we're denying the deity. This group of people understood there was something scripture about Jesus, but they didn't seem to quite get that he was true God who became true man. Even still today, many Christians miss the deity of Christ, in which case he becomes more of a wise man, a wise man who has a lot of things to say. Now, I have a friend who's a very good carpenter, and he's a very wise man to go to for carpentry advice, but he's terribly bad with finance, so I wouldn't go to him for financial advice. And if Jesus is not true God, he might have a lot of wise things to say, like Confucius, but I wouldn't look to his advice on how to deal with your enemies because he ends up dying on a cross, right? When we take the deity away from Christ, that's all he is, is a self-help guru. And if you go to Christian bookstores, sadly, there are a lot of books that that's all they do with Jesus. The Bible diet. Twelve steps to a better life. They don't even realize that they're ignoring the deity and missing the big picture. He is the one who was anointed with the Holy Spirit. True God who became true man to save you. He had to be a human so that he could be tempted like you and I are tempted. But he had to be God that he would never fall into temptation. He had to be a human that he could be our substitute our representative in God's court, he had to be true God that his death would atone for all of my rotten, stinky sins and all of your miserable sins. He had to be true God that he could suffer an eternity in hell for you and get it done in three hours' time. Only man can die. Only God's death could be so valuable that it could be the substitute for every one of us and rise and give us eternal life. Jesus reveals the thoughts of our hearts. If we look at that baby in the manger, that man on the cross, and just see a wise man, we are denying the deity of Christ. But for you and I, we are blessed that God has given us the Holy Spirit, and we are convinced that is true God who became true man to save us, and because of our faith in him, we are saved. So let's go back to our text, to verse 41. We're told others said this is the Christ, but some said, surely the Christ does not come from Galilee, does he? Doesn't the scripture say that Christ comes from David's descendants and from the little town of Bethlehem where David lived? Now you have the group that just outright denies Christ. They knew the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem because the prophet Micah, nearly 700 years earlier, prophesied in chapter 5, starting at verse 2, which was our first lesson, 
that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, a descendant of David. Now, here's the amazing thing. In a couple of days, the Christian church throughout the world will celebrate, by tradition, Epiphany. That's when the wise men came to worship the Savior. Chances are it took the wise men a month or longer to get there. And a star led them. But if you read the narrative, the star takes them to Jerusalem and then it disappears. They go to Jerusalem and have to ask around, where is the Messiah to be born? The rabbis, the priests, the scribes, they knew because of Micah that the Savior had to be born in Bethlehem. So the wise men pack up their stuff and head to Bethlehem. And then the star appears again. And not only does it lead them to the general vicinity, it leads them to the very house that Joseph had now acquired for his family. I always wondered, why did God do it that way? Because we know the rest of the story. This tips Herod off that the king of kings has been born. And Herod, not wanting what he thinks is political competition, has every newborn child slaughtered. Every two-year-old and younger male in Bethlehem is killed, except for Jesus. Because God warned Joseph in a dream, and Joseph books it down to Egypt. Oh, there's another prophecy in the scriptures. Out of Egypt I called my son. But you know, when Herod dies, Joseph says, great, I can return back to Israel and be around my people. But he hears his son is ruling in the region of Bethlehem. So he goes to stay in the town of Nazareth, which is of Galilee. Now, here's the interesting thing. In the Psalms, it is predicted that Jesus will be called a nobody. The Hebrew word for that when transliterated into English is Nazareth. Jesus doesn't just fulfill the prophecy that he would be born in Bethlehem. There's a lot of prophecies about him coming out of Egypt and that he would be a nobody. And he fulfills all of them the way no other human being can, showing us that this is true God who became true man, who is the Messiah. And there was the murder of children in Bethlehem. So the prophets and the scribes, people like the high priest Annas, he would have been alive and functioning to know that the wise men had come 33 years earlier looking for the Christ. Ultimately, do you catch that they're missing something big? Isn't he supposed to be born in Bethlehem? Duh! Yes! And God, through the sin of Herod and other things, made it very abundantly clear that he was born. Have you ever had somebody where we say, he missed the forest from the trees? Or... If it was a snake, it would have bit you. Yes, Jesus is from Bethlehem and he's called out of Egypt and he was a nobody in their eyes proving this. Some outright deny him. Psychologists study how human beings can look at something. If it was a snake, it would have bit you and miss it. And they call it confirmation bias, where you are so insistent on something that the facts no longer matter. That's what's going on here. They are outright denying what is blatantly obvious. But in our sinful nature, we do this. There's many ways I can apply this text. I want to focus on two ways in which our own sinful nature makes us miss and end up outright denying that Christ is the Savior. The first is called legalism. 
Christ kept the law for you. The law always accuses, but you are now covered by the blood of the God-man. The law is not a means of salvation for you. Because we think that if you keep the law, then you'll be saved. But we always miss that you don't keep the law. So then we think, i got to do extra keeping of the law and I'll be saved. But that's not how it works. The law makes it clear you keep the law 100% and the moment you break it, you're damned to hell. Yet we always struggle. It's our natural religion. It's built into our sinful nature. Who is the slave to Satan? It's built into our sinful nature to believe we just do a little extra good and we make up for the bad. And so Christians fall into legalism. Oh yes, Jesus did all the work of salvation. He's my Savior. But you just got to do this one little thing. The entire epistle of Galatians is written because Jewish Christians, Judaizers, came to the congregation and said, Yes, yes, Jesus has saved you. But men, men, you just have to be circumcised and then you'll be saved. Never mind that circumcision pointed to the coming Savior and was fulfilled by Christ. And the Apostle Paul has to tell the Galatians, if you fall into this, if you're going to make one little ounce of your salvation depend on keeping the law, like being circumcised, then you're going to be damned to hell. Let's apply it to ways we are tempted to do it in our own church. And I'm going to make a somewhat absurd connection. In 1 Corinthians, the women in the congregation learning their Christian freedom begin gender bending. They intentionally are dressing like men. And so the Apostle Paul talks about covering yourself. And we can miss this. The Jewish men, when they went to the synagogue, which is what our church now comes out of, would cover their heads with a prayer shawl. But he says women don't need to do that. They have a natural covering. They don't tend to suffer from male pattern baldness. But today in America, it's rude if you wear a hat in a building, right? For men. We don't wear it like a prayer shawl. Scripture sees this as one of those ceremonial type things that we wouldn't want somebody's salvation jeopardized over. So here's the absurd example. Imagine if somebody, and in America today, this is getting to be very commonplace, who doesn't know anything about Jesus, decides to visit our congregation, but the young man is wearing a bandana. Somebody thinks to themselves, well, I just know you don't wear a hat in church if you're a man. And so they come up to that person and tell them, you get out of our church or you take that bandana off and end up making that young man feel like his salvation depends on whether or not he's wearing a bandana or not. See, that Christian would have fallen into legalism. They would have taught that person's salvation depended on wearing a bandana. How absurd. And yet, our sinful nature, you and I both have little things our sinful nature clings to and says, unless I do this, I'm not saved. We keep the law because we are saved. We are connected to Christ. Our new man keeps it 100% of the time. Our sinful nature is always breaking it. We don't want to fall into legalism and make our salvation depend on something that we do. Christ demands faith and through the word that he is our savior, the Holy Spirit comes and creates and sustains that faith. Now, the other way we can go is the complete opposite in that the reformers, Martin Luther and those called Antinomianism. 
This is to say Christ has kept the law for me, so let's wad up the law and throw it out. It no longer applies. God is still holy. And the perfect example of somebody who truly is an antinomian is a guy who gets his Christian freedom in Corinth. He gets it. Christ has removed my sin. Christ has kept the law for me. Woohoo! I can have intercourse with my stepmother and brag about it. Look at my Christian freedom. Paul says, "Uh uh-uh. God is still holy. Excommunicate the immoral brother. He repents. That's the other extreme our sinful nature leads us to. Well, Christ has already forgiven me. I can run out and embrace my sin. But God is still holy. And Christian churches today, they will look at politically incorrect sins today. And they'll excuse those away by saying, well, God is love. And certainly God is love. But if we embrace a sin, and every one of us have sins we struggle with and fall to by the day. I'm talking about embracing it. This is it. I don't care. I, don't, I know it's a sin and I no longer care. When we embrace a sin, we can excuse it by saying God's love. He would love me for this. Well, that's like saying if you live on a busy street with semis easily going 30 miles an hour, but your child just loves to play out in the middle of the street, and if you love your child, you'll let them do it and not warn them. Well, you and I know then it's just a matter of time before that child disgustingly and sadly ends up a hood ornament to a semi. When we excuse away sin like that, we're missing it. Yes, Christ kept the law perfectly for you and us so that he could unite us to him through the new man he's given us who is holy and his law still stands to show us holiness. It's just not a means of salvation. And so you and I struggle to conform to the law. We do it perfectly according to our new man, but he has to struggle with our sinful nature because we are saved. Because we do want to thank and praise God. And it only works this way for a Christian Your sinful nature says you're not so good. The law turns around and says, what do you mean? You love your neighbor as yourself because God's love is in your heart. It only works for a Christian to show him that because only a Christian has the new man. And so we see some deny Christ outright. And we want to be careful because if we fall into antinomianism or legalism, we don't even realize we're denying him. But he is true God who became true man to save us. So Jesus reveals the thoughts of our hearts. Some miss the deity, some deny him outright, but by the Holy Spirit in your heart that keeps bringing you to the word to have your faith, your new man recharged, you know that Jesus is the Christ. And like the people in today's text, you confess, this is Christ, the Savior, the one anointed for my salvation. Amen. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.